Uh, you look just like Tom Selleck, right? Uh, Tom Selleck looks like me. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey, Matthew. Hey, Stuart. (laughs) The... The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Clear your brain hole. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello. Paul is once again herding cats. No. No. Clouder of cats. His clouder of cats. There's not a herd of cats. Well, he's herding a clouder of cats. Maybe this is herding cats. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Stephen Dikoski. Dr. Dikoski is the Deputy Director of the McKnight Brain Institute at the University of Florida. He is also a member of the American Academy of Neurology who helped set up this interview. He is an expert in Alzheimer's disease and also CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and was one of the first people to, to discover this disorder. We do not get into the uh, CTE on this episode, And I am not going to read his entire CV because it is, I am telling you, extensive, very impressive. I will link to it in the show notes. You should definitely read it. He has worked for multiple universities, institutions, held multiple positions uh, in Alzheimer's foundations and research centers. He has published over 400 papers. He has, of course, been featured in journals and done interviews on TV and various other forms of media. Dr. Dukoski is an absolute international expert on Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And he was played by Eddie Marsan in the movie Concussion. Y- yes, that's right. Uh, the movie Concussion does feature him uh, in the movie. Yes. That was very redundant. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Moving okay. on. Well... Without further ado, here is our discussion with Dr. Stephen Dukoski. You will never forget it. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. Hi, Stuart. This this is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with Dr. Stuart Brigham. That's me. And we are very proud to introduce our guest. He is the Deputy Director of the McKnight Brain Institute at the University of Florida and also a proud member of the American Academy of Neurology who is gracious enough to set up this interview. This is Dr. Stephen Dukoski. Hi, Dr. Dukoski. Hello, Matt. How are you? Good. Good. So we have lots of questions for you about Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, and I know that you're more than qualified to answer them. But usually before we get into those questions, uh, we just like to ask you some just kind of basic things, uh, just so our audience can get to know you a little bit. What are you best known for as a neurologist? I suspect it's uh, for working in Alzheimer's disease for the past 30 years. Uh, I have directed uh, the Alzheimer's Center at the University of Pittsburgh for about 15 years and was the co-founder of the center at the University of Kentucky uh, back in the 80s, one of the first 10 NIA-funded centers in the country. And I've become a little more known over the past 10 years uh, as having helped describe the first case of uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy in an American football player. Those are probably my two main claims. I have some basic science work that I've done, but working in Alzheimer's in the lab and in the clinic and Working in uh, CTE uh, pathologically and clinically are probably what I'm best known for. Very cool. And uh, Stuart Stuart had brought up in pre-recording that uh, there is a character in the movie Concussion based on you, but uh, maybe the character doesn't resemble you. Uh, You look just like Tom Selleck, right? Uh, Tom Selleck looks like me. (laughs) But uh, no, that fellow doesn't look a lot like me. Uh, He was chosen for his acting, I think, not for his resemblance to me. Mm. Because I know we have limited time with you, I I do want to move on to the main topic where we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's dementia. And I think maybe a good way to introduce it, uh, we we use fake cases from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. You know where Stuart and I work, sir, but we... 
we can't say that on air. We can't say that on air because it's just too much red tape. So we talk, we say we work at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. Cashlack. And uh, Cashlack, we have a geriatrics heavy clinic. And not that they're heavy patients. Some of them are. But they are uh, – it's mostly geriatrics. <laughs> and uh, so so we see a lot of patients come in. They're, they're in their late 70s, maybe early 80s. And, and, and let's just go with a typical patient. Someone comes in, they say, either the patient or the patient's wife will say, I really feel like my memory's slowing down. I'm not as sharp as I used to be. Patient says, uh, uh, let's say it's a man, 79-year-old man, says he's not depressed, hasn't had any car accidents, no, not really noticing any problems with the finances, um, but worried about dementia. First of all, how do you how do you define dementia for this patient and this family member? And then we'll kind of go into how you start to evaluate it. Well, defining dementia is actually uh, a big piece of talking to people who come in with a complaint of cognitive decline. Uh, there is, I'm very regretful to say, some degree of normal aging changes in cognition, uh, largely around processing speed and the uh, inability to fool yourself that you can parallel process multiple things. You, you don't do that uh, quite as well as you did when you were younger. But the definition of dementia is a loss of thinking function, which is greater than you would expect for the age of the person uh, and their level of education and other things such as their vocation and so forth. So one question, of course, is um, uh, how severe is the problem? The second issue beside the uh, severity of it, and does it worry you that these are people who have some kind of medical disease causing their cognitive impairment or a depression, as you mentioned, is who comes with them to who knows them well enough to be able to give you a story uh, about what they have observed. So if someone comes in who by definition is there because they think they have a memory impairment, you can do a very careful history. but you may be in a position of not getting a lot of information or getting information that just isn't accurate depending on how impaired the person is. So we don't see people in the clinic without having someone come with them. And if there's absolutely no one who can come with them, we search out someone who knows them well enough to be able to tell us something about them. In either case, we also would do at least some screening testing to see what the nature of their problem is, as well as um, the history and some examples, uh, anecdotes really make the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. What sorts of things are there that people uh, are doing that they would tell you uh, were examples of the kinds of problems that they had? Uh, you know, I tell people that if you've got someone who has moderate disease, anecdotes make the diagnosis. No one puts shoes in the freezer with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, no one packs their bags and stands by the front door uh, saying that they want to go home when they're in the house they've lived in for 25 years. You hear those kinds of things. Parkinson's dementias don't do that. Vascular dementias don't do that. Uh, dementia with Lewy bodies don't do that. That's an Alzheimer trying to make sense of the world. Uh, and those are unique uh, kinds of stories that tell you that their processing is in this one of the typical altered ways that Alzheimer's patients try to make sense of the world. So there was a uh, a nice article, at least I, I thought it was nice, that was published in 2015 in JAMA that specifically looked at all the cognitive tests available. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis that uh, looked at each individual cognitive testing. Um, there, there's some question as far as the validity of uh, so, some of the studies, as far as the number of studies and um, you personally, which studies do you recommend doing at the bedside, whether it's the MMSE, the SLUMS, MOCA, ACE, R, MINICOG? Which ones do you recommend that we, that we do by the bedside for initial testing, screening, and then follow-up? Well, it would depend whether it's initial testing, screening, or follow-up, uh, for one thing. Uh, for another, the mini mental state exam, uh, now you uh, be, have to pay a licensing fee, and it's one of the reasons why it's been used less and less as time goes by. And the, the rise of the MOCA, uh, as we put it, the Montreal uh, Cognitive Assessment, uh, has become very popular. There are no charges associated with it. And unlike the mini mental, uh, which was uh, developed uh, for really cognitive assessment in psychiatric patients, not specifically in dementia, the MOCA was developed 
to be able to look at uh, the specific areas of cognition that you suspect would go uh, wrong in someone with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it looks at the different domains, language, visual, spatial, executive, to be able to give you a hint both about where the, the abnormalities are and which abnormalities accompany themselves, and to some extent, what's the sequence with which they occurred. Most commonly, but not always, uh, a person who develops a memory loss that is largely confined to short-term memory that gets worse and worse and eventually exceeds normal age-related memory function that's the most common way that an Alzheimer's disease patient will present. They usually then will develop uh, language problems, especially word finding that is worse than the normal word finding problems people have as they get older. And then when they begin to have problems with executive function, that is when uh, people notice things. They make judgment errors. Uh, they may buy things that they don't need. Uh, be sold things uh, by people that they don't need their judgment, which is, of course, an executive function, or the idea of planning for the future uh, may go bad. When that happens first with either inappropriate social behavior or judgment problems, then we wonder about frontal lobe disease, where the executive function mostly lives. And you can wonder about different disorders, especially frontotemporal dementia or uh, some kind of uh, frontal tumor. But in general, the kinds of progressions that people describe when they come in, and frequently this is the person who uh, accompanies the, the subject, depending on how uh, severely impaired they are, uh, the, the nature of what happens first and then what happens over time uh, is a huge uh, asset to being able to make a determination. My own view is I like the MOCA a great deal. I can do the mini metal by heart uh, after using it uh, for so long. Uh, and I think the issue that you're getting at is key. It's one thing to say, how much should I do just to screen this person to see whether or not they are okay? Let's say someone who comes in for a um, uh, their yearly evaluation, but they're 79, you don't have much history. Should somebody do a screen on them um, before you see them, uh, or are there a few things you should ask just to make sure that they are okay? You have to get beyond being able to make simple uh, conversation because an Alzheimer's patient can fool you, especially early in the course, and have a, a conversation of, yes, sir, I'm fine, everybody is fine in the family. And then if you brought them back in five minutes later, they would have the entire conversation with you again. But um, I think any of the standardized ones are fine. I think the most data that ever accrued are on the mini metal because it's been around since the 70s uh, and it was the most common thing used. The, the relationship to know about, the proportionality is the more you test, the more accurate the information will be that you get. And the less screening you do, the greater the possibility that you'll either have false positives or false negatives. And I think the answer to your question is also very different if it's a primary care physician, an internist or a family practitioner versus a neurologist. If someone comes to, to see me uh, and they've already seen their primary care physician and either she has sent them or uh, they've come because they think, well, if it's a memory problem, I should go to a memory clinic. Those are, I would do things differently and in more detail than a person who is seeing their patient and along with the four other complaints from, uh, what was that, cash-free hospital that you... Cash-lack memorial hospital. I like cash-free. Yeah, cash-free. <laughs> Lack of cash memorial hospital, right. Uh, so those people who come in to see their physician for multiple other issues and you also want to check on their cognition, those are the people who I think you can uh, use the shorter tests with. Um, you know, I read somewhere that if we did every one of the guideline assessments we should do for general practice, that it would take, you know, three days to do an evaluation. You just can't do everything. So I think uh, especially if they have someone come with them, which I always strongly prefer uh, if uh, someone comes into a geriatric clinic or comes into a clinic to see an internist or a family doctor and they are over a certain age, let's say over 75, strongly recommend they have someone come with them because you may find out things from the uh, accompanying partner uh, that you might not get from the patient. The other thing is, of course, that highly intelligent people can disguise this kind of change uh, for a long time. 
before they actually wear through what we call their cognitive reserve uh, and might even test well. But let's say they have a, a degree and they have engaged in a highly intellectual vocation for their lives. They test well, let's say 28 or 29 on the mini mental or 27. Watch out for these. They missed all three uh, objects at five minutes. So they have a 27 that's in the normal range. But zero out of three at five minutes means that, you know, there is something wrong with their short term memory. These people you want to talk to the uh, other person and say, OK, can you tell me? Uh, about his uh, cognition. So I think some of these shorter things, especially if I had one thing to check on, it would be delayed recall, the proverbial three objects at five minutes, uh, because that is, if you're trying to screen people in a hurry, the thing that gives you the biggest uh, payoff, the biggest bang for the buck, uh, if you're not uh, going to have enough time to do something more. Then if you're suspicious, it's time to... Um, do something else. It's time to send them to see someone else or perhaps to have some more neuropsychological testing done uh, in detail, depending on the nature of the practice and how easy it would be for you to get that kind of testing done. And sir, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to break. So what, what I, my, my workaround, I, generally you're going to be seeing somebody for blood pressure, diabetes, you're going to be trying to do their cancer screening and they break in with this memory complaint. One of the things that I will do is the um, the mini the mini cog, which is the delayed recall and the clock drawing. And then if that's abnormal, I'll bring them back for a thirty minute visit specifically to focus on the memory, where we'll do one of the more formal tests like a MOCA and make sure they bring a family member. And that's just for our listeners, just for like the practical thing. That's my workaround as a primary right. care doc. That and that group of that particular combination. Uh, uh, was put together by a geriatric psychiatrist with the recommendation, this casts the broad net. Uh, there's sequencing and executive behavior as well as visual spatial things involved in the clock draw. And, he, and you've got that, uh, my big flag, the delayed recall for three objects. So you really do scan a lot in a very short period of time. So aside from the cognitive testing and talking to the family, the American Academy of Neurology these were guidelines that were updated in 2001. They recommended doing an initial CBC, fasting glucose, TSH, B12, kidney, uh, liver panel, and, of course, the, the depression screening as part of routine testing. Are there any other new useful labs, however, that we could use uh, to routinely test these patients? Yeah, I led that 2001 uh, uh, program of uh, review of the literature, so thank you for bringing it up. It's It's a bit outdated now, but it is worth saying that uh, a lot of the discussion had to do with something we hinted at before. That is that if an internist sends me a patient for a question of cognitive ability, my assumption is that they have checked the uh, a potential chest film, the cardiac disease. They've looked for renal disease or and done those blood tests. And in general, those things come in with from their physicians without us having to do anything. And the two things we do usually do if we do anything are a B12 and a thyroid, not because uh, they will really uh, be the primary cause of a cognitive impairment, but because we know that treating them, if someone does have a cognitive impairment, will frequently improve their function. Uh, if they look like they have AD and they have hypothyroidism, uh, they have both, uh, but they will do better if you uh, fix their, uh, their uh, thyroid a uh, function and get them back to uh, to a euthymic condition. It looked like from your CV that there that you've been involved in some trials looking at either genetic testing or serum or CSF biomarkers. Are these things that that um, general practitioners and primary care providers need to be aware of? Are these close to becoming mainstream? And can you just kind of briefly tell us a little bit about what to look out for there? Sure. Uh, there, in the in one that we didn't have any of the information uh, about the biomarkers that you have just discussed. Uh, you can look for evidence of Alzheimer's disease with some significant positive. First of all, you can do it with neuropsychological testing. If you do more specific uh, neuropsychological testing, you may well get back a pattern which the neuropsychologist will tell you is a a pattern that is most typical of Alzheimer's disease. And if you do 
an MR scan of the brain that does not show a structural reason of vascular disease, uh, multiple infarcts, uh, diffuse white matter changes, or uh, mass lesion, uh, if there is nothing but perhaps some atrophy on that scan, uh, a neuropsychological testing assessment will probably give you a pattern that will help make the diagnosis in most cases. If you do a spinal tap, and this is the downside of, of utilizing uh, uh, the CSF biomarker because uh, neither the internist nor the patient is eager to do a lumbar puncture, uh, especially in the middle of a busy clinic, uh, <laughs> A change in the uh, direction of um, the levels of two of the proteins that are involved in Alzheimer's disease in the spinal fluid helps make the diagnosis. If you've got someone who comes in with, let's say, some uh, delayed recall issues and some executive function problems or language problems, you do a lumbar puncture and they have lower than normal levels of beta amyloid, the, the uh, peptide that makes up the plaques in the brain in Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid plaques, and higher than normal levels of tau or phosphotau, which is the content of the neurofibrillary tangles, uh, that high tau and low amyloid is the signature for Alzheimer's, and it would confirm the diagnosis. Now, the why would amyloid be low if there's plaques in the brain? We believe that it builds up slowly over time, and at some point, uh, probably long before they came to see the doctor, because you can have plaques in your brain for a decade or more before you see any cognitive abnormalities. At some point, you build up to a high enough level that it begins to aggregate what forms the plaques. And when it does that, uh, it's like crystallizing a supersaturated solution. The levels of beta amyloid in the spinal fluid go down, and that's why you have lower than normal levels of beta. Tau, on the other hand, is an intercellular uh, protein intracellular protein. And it's kind of like with an MI or with liver disease, when you see intracellular proteins in the blood, it means the cells are injured. If tau goes up in the spinal fluid, it's because uh, the neurons that have built up abnormal tau are leaking, uh, some are dying, and you see elevation of tau. So that spinal tap will give you the answer. Uh, more recently, uh, we have developed a number of uh, tracers for a uh, PET scan, which will show you the actual protein, the amyloid protein. There are currently three uh, marketed and FDA approved uh, PET ligands or tracers uh, for uh, doing this test. And if that test is positive in the face of cognitive impairment, then that also would confirm the diagnosis. However, the although the FDA has approved all three of the current uh, amyloid tracers, the uh, CMS, Medicare, has, does not yet pay for it, and none of the commercial payers will pay for it. So it's usually done either in research, uh, so you may get it done as part of a research protocol in an academic medical center, uh, or if you want to pay for it yourself, and those tests usually cost between three dollars and $4,000, uh, so all told. So there are these new biomarkers that uh, greatly increase the likelihood of being able to make the diagnosis. But as you might guess, uh, the real brass ring would be to find a blood marker that uh, shows us that this disease is going on in the brain. Search for something in the blood, like searching for deposition of amyloid anywhere else in the body other than inside the brain, has been going on for probably 20 years and we have not yet been able to find anything that would help you make the diagnosis peripherally. The exception to that would be either in genetics, uh, getting a history that says 50% of every generation has gotten the disease, uh, and usually they breed true, that between, say, 45 and 50, or 15 and 55, or even younger, and these are the people who have one of the three mutations that are causative for Alzheimer's, all three of those mutations, as you know, uh, alter amyloid metabolism in some way. One is in the amyloid uh, gene itself, and the other two are in the enzymes that process amyloid. And the one strongest gene, which isn't determinative like the uh, or deterministic like the mutations are, but increases your risk is the apolipoprotein E gene. Uh, if you're a homozygous E4, that is, if you've got an E4 allele both from your mother and from your father, then your chances of developing the disease are uh, probably 10 to 12 times 
higher than someone who uh, just has the brown-eyed equivalent, the, an E33. Sometimes it's worth it to get the testing done, especially in someone who's a bit younger. Uh, but the reason that people don't do those tests as frequently is that you also get information uh, that has implications for other members of the family. The last comment about that is that although legislation protects you from uh, insurance problems uh, because you are known to have a genetic problem. So if you have in your medical record, not in your research record, which is not available, but in your medical record that you have uh, an APO4, uh, APOE4 allele, uh, the likelihood is that you would be not denied long-term care insurance. That's not illegal to deny on the basis of that risk, just as you might be denied it if one of your parents had developed the disease uh, in, at a relatively earlier age. I was unaware of that, actually. Um, so that kind of brings, brings us briefly to the next uh, step, and that is, as far as brain imaging, are there any specific advanced imaging techniques that you would recommend, like PET scanning for someone that you think is at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, or is developing some of the earlier uh, signs and symptoms to suggest Alzheimer's disease? It's a great question. Right now, no one recommends that people have a scan done to see if they have it for two reasons. The first is without, this is the reason CMS won't pay for it, without a therapy or without an, uh, a proven reason that it's beneficial to know for certain that you have the disease, CMS does not see the value in uh, paying for the scan. The other problem with this, which we've only learned over the last 10 years, is that not everyone who has a positive scan is going to get Alzheimer's disease clinically. So you probably know from the Nun study and the religious order study that probably about a third of people over the age of 85 who have cognitively tested normal function uh, have uh, enough amyloid in their brains to say that if they had been demented, they would have a, an Alzheimer's pathological diagnosis. So not everybody, when they load up with amyloid, develops the cognitive decline. We used to think that if we saw it, that was it. They were going to get it at some point, unless, of course, they you know, were uh, uh, accidentally died uh, before they had uh, time to um, uh, manifest the disease. But now we know that people will live into their 80s uh, or more and not develop the disease. So what we say now is even if you did a positive, did a scan and got a positive amyloid, it means that you're uh, statistical chances of developing Alzheimer's disease are uh, much higher uh, and if you're cognitively totally normal. Uh, but it's not a guarantee that you will actually get the disease. On the other hand, if you come in with mild cognitive impairment and you have a positive scan, it means you are in the middle of developing the disease. All the therapies being developed either for MCI or for pre-symptomatic prevention are directed at stretching out the time before you would begin to have uh, uh, clinical cognitive failure, either delay it until you're, you know, 102 or something like that, or die of what the epidemiologists cheerfully call a uh, a competing mortality, meaning you don't die on my lawn. Sir, I wanted to uh, you you brought up you brought up a point that I was going to ask you about. The, there was a, an article in The Lancet in July 2016, I think it was from a symposium, symposium on Alzheimer's, and they were talking about the goal is to recognize preclinical Alzheimer's disease and those who are, quote, at risk for Alzheimer's disease and start to intervene then, and they're kind of targeting by 2025, they want to have something on the market that can modify the disease uh, or prevent the disease how do we how do we diagnose preclinical Alzheimer's disease? Uh, does it have to be with imaging, or can we do that? Um, is there any sort of other testing that we can use as primary care docs? By definition, if it's preclinical, their cognitive testing will be in the normal range, so you can't do it with cognitive testing. The two ways that you might identify it would be with a lumbar puncture, uh, which you know, generally is not well received at, on either end of the needle if you're cognitively normal. The doc doesn't want to do it. The patient doesn't want it. Or you can do a scan. And um, the, uh, the, the percentage of people with a positive scan uh, unsurprisingly increases uh, as you move through your 50s into your 60s and then your 70s and 80s. In fact, by the time you get into your 80s, probably 50 percent of people have uh, a positive scan, which goes along with the fact that about 
47% or so of people in a number of epidemiological studies uh, by age 85 had some degree of dementia. But until we have a therapy to offer someone with uh, uh, preclinical uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, then there is no reason uh, to do the scan. Uh, it will cause anxiety, and you might be one of the people who will die at 92, surrounded by your family reading Proust. So <laughs> the other thing to keep in mind is that the things that we would tell people to do, this, is ha this happened, and the same question came up when ApoE4 uh, was found uh, to be a reasonably reliable predictor of increased risk of disease. The issue became, well, should we test our patients for ApoE? And the answer there was, if they're cognitively normal, no, uh, because what would you do if you found out they were positive? Everything that we can tell our patients to do now to decrease their chances, eat more fish, eat green vegetables, uh, exercise regularly, maintain a wide social a group of people and don't isolate yourself. Be aggressively treated for uh, depression if you have it. Uh, keep your weight down. Uh, make sure your blood pressure is under control. All of those things that you all spend your careers trying to tell people and get a lot of exercise, those are the things that we know are actually associated with a lowered risk of subsequent development of the disease. And you wouldn't need to have an, uh, uh, a genetic test uh, that tells you that your risk is elevated to do those things. The best answer I've gotten from people who say, well, I want to be tested anyway is, is it, well, that would give me added uh, motivation to do this, to which I say, boy, you know, how would you feel if you got Alzheimer's disease? They'd say, well, I would feel terrible. I said, there's your motivation. Our problem, of course, is that, that you know, all of those things I just said also speak directly to heart disease, for which there are a lot of similarities between Alzheimer's and uh uh, and cardiac disease, uh, and that has still not stopped the epidemic of obesity, et cetera. Uh, but those are, it's kind of everything that's good for your heart is good for your head, and those are things that we can do that probably will decrease the total number of cases if we can convince people to follow those directions, both for their head and for their heart. Getting back to our initial 79-year-old male from, from Cashlack, let's say uh, just to kind of summarize what we've talked about so far. Okay. He comes in with his wife. His wife says, yeah, I have noticed he's not as sharp as he was. We do a mocha. Maybe it's abnormal. So we plan, we're going to follow him maybe, um, every three to six months or something like that. And, and repeat the testing. We do the basic lab workup. He says, I have some friends that, that also have memory problems. Their doctors are getting just CAT scans or their doctors are getting MRIs of their brain. And, and actually, this is something that I see done a lot in the um, just kind of out there, patients with dementia getting CAT scans and MRIs routinely. Is that recommended in the guidelines? And is that, is that anything that's really high yield? Well, it's, it's high yield as a rule out in general. Um, for the person uh, at your hospital, the neuropsychological testing is uh, a big issue, and especially I'm trying to differentiate between what a primary care physician might do and what a neurologist might do. Neurology guidelines recommend at least one scan done during the course of a person's symptomatic period. Now, if you're going to get a scan, uh, I would get an MR scan and not a, a CAT scan, not only because the resolution of the MR scan is higher and will give you a better look, but also because it's much more sensitive to vascular changes in the brain, which may have something to do with this particular patient who has a number of vascular risks. Uh, once you have a scan that rules out the possibility of uh, hemorrhages or perhaps rules in significant amounts of vascular disease that might be the cause of this, you don't need another one unless they develop other abnormalities. My advice to primary care physicians always is if someone comes in with a complaint of cognitive function, the first two things to look for are do they have any lateralization on their exam and do they look Parkinsonian at all? Either one of those things will lead you into a different diagnostic uh, flow than Alzheimer's itself. Alzheimer's disease should not cause lateralized abnormalities in the exam. There are case report exceptions to that, but in general, as with the patients you've seen, uh, their exams are normal. 
Uh, also, patients with Alzheimer's disease may develop uh, some Parkinsonian symptoms, some bradykinesia, some uh, uh, slowed uh, function, and so forth. But that's usually not until they have moderate to severe levels of the disease or they're put on a med that causes the side effect. So if they come in to see you early in the course and they have either uh, a lateralized abnormality on exam, weakness or sensory loss somewhere, uh, or they have Parkinsonism, then uh, the, the differential diagnosis changes. I would put Alzheimer's disease on the back burner, or maybe it's the second reason for a problem, but I would look for a vascular or structural change in the brain if they have lateralized abnormalities. And if they look Parkinsonian, then I would be concerned about the possibility of Lewy body dementia or one of the other less common movement disorders that's also associated with cognitive loss early in the course of the disease. And sir, a follow-up question there, just to clarify, MRI of the brain with and without gadolinium? I would spare the patient the gadolinium. If something shows up on the um, unenhanced scan that uh, has someone concerned, maybe they see something that is a uh, uh, a mass lesion that isn't showing up very well, then uh, they may decide to do a scan. But a routine uh, with and without is not something that uh, we recommend for somebody with uh, uh, suspicion of a neurodegenerative dementia. The non-enhanced scan is sufficient. So one of the issues that we commonly deal with in our clinic and when we talk to residents or when we talk to, to families of patients is when do we initiate medical therapy for these Alzheimer's disease patients? Well, we, we've actually got a fairly good double-blind placebo-controlled trial that suggests that giving uh, cholinesterase inhibitors to people with mild cognitive impairment doesn't really help them. So uh, I don't start people with MCI on uh, any of the esterase inhibitors, uh, but I do put people on it in if they meet criteria for Alzheimer's disease itself. I don't start people on memantine, the one uh, glutamate receptor modulator, until they have uh, at least uh, moderate levels of severity, we would say a 15 on a mocha or on a, uh, a mini mental. Uh, because we not only don't think it works in mild disease, but there have been a number of studies that have failed to show that it uh, results in any slowing or improvement of any kind in people with MCI or with mild Alzheimer's. So I know frequently people will put uh, patients on both immediately, just saying, okay, let's get all the guns out there right away. Uh, but without evidence that, for example, memantine is helpful, I actually save it until the patient has moved to a point where uh, they have more moderate disease because it, it still costs money even though it is a now uh, uh, available as a off patent. But I, I see no reason to give it to uh, patients unless they are ready for it at a time when it might be predicted to, to help them. The other issue has to do with, uh, you know, when should you take them off? It's useful if you look at the pharmacy prescription data to see that a very large percentage of people, I was horrified to see the data look similar to hypertension, where people will take the drug for three months or so and then stop it. If there were going to be the feared uh, crash of cognition uh, that uh, is uh, talked about in people who have take a cholinesterol inhibitor and then stop it, uh, what I tell them is go back on if it looks, and I take them down slowly, uh, but if it looks like they uh, are declining, then we'll just put them back on. Uh, but most of the people who start these drugs, many of the people, I guess I should say, don't continue them on their own. And you can bet that if it were very common that once they stopped renewing the prescription, the patient got suddenly worse, that you would all have experience of a frantic family member calling you up and saying, oh my gosh, I just didn't renew it after three months and, and now he's much worse. Having said that, these drugs don't have uh, Lazarus-like effects, except in a very few people. They are much more likely to be helpful if the person has either dementia with Lewy bodies or a combination, which isn't uncommon, of Alzheimer's and dementia with Lewy bodies. Those people do have a significant improvement in their function. And uh, actually, that is a key if they have a really good response that they probably have DLB along with their Alzheimer's disease, assuming you can prove that they have AD. Sir, I wanted to just ask, uh, just to jump back just one step, 
when you're when you're differentiating between mild cognitive impairment and dementia, what's an easy way for for listeners to do that clinically? How many areas of cognition look like they're not normal? If it's only memory and everything else is uh, in the normal range, uh, that's MCI. By definition, uh, dementia requires two areas of cognitive function to be down, and they have to be uh, insidious in onset and slow in progression. And usually, you know, memory is first and it gets worse, and then you start to see changes in something else, judgment or language, etc. So you can't make a diagnosis of dementia unless you have more than one area. And so MCI means one area only and the rest are all in the normal range. One of the advantages of some of these new biomarkers, and remember, we're talking here about things that are still uh, largely experimental. If a person comes in with an amnestic disorder, just classic uh, memory loss MCI, and you do a spinal tap, and see low amyloid and high tau, or you do an amyloid scan and you see uh, a positive scan, uh, then we actually refer to them as MCI of the Alzheimer type because we know in that case that the cause is is, uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, But not everybody, interestingly enough, who comes in with MCI has, uh, with amnestic dementia, has Alzheimer's disease that comes. This has only taken us years to kind of follow people and see what happens. A a large number of them don't have positive scans. So our simple rule is if you've got one area across, you know, how are they functioning in those four cognitive areas, one area that's down below the somewhat arbitrary uh, point of one and a half standard deviations below the mean for their age and education, only one down, that's MCI. You got two down uh, below that, they have dementia. And sir, I, I see a fair number of patients labeled as having vascular dementia. And it, it just essentially, when I see people get labeled that way, it's when they, they come in with some memory complaints and then you follow them for two, three, four, five years. And clinically, you really don't see any change in function and they seem to have stabilized. Is that a fair assessment to make in that case that this could be just vascular dementia or, or is that probably something else that we're just mislabeling? I, I can't think of anything off the top that you're mislabeling if they had the initial workup. It may be true that they have vascular cognitive impairment, uh, as we, another new term, uh, VCI, and that indeed might not necessarily progress, especially you, when you find them, you get aggressive about uh, treating them with antihypertensive medications and uh, if they uh, have uh, atrial fibrillation making sure that they're adequately treated for that. And it, what it requires, if you're going to say, okay, that's the reason, would be some evidence that they have vascular disease. So lots of white matter change, maybe several uh, lacunes. You may see some, another reason to do MRs rather than CT scans. If you see some lacunes, uh, it means there's probably more, uh, but it is very unusual for a patient with Alzheimer's disease, uh, as you know, to go for three or four years with no real change in their cognition. So I would say at that point, yes, if they had vascular risk factors, they have some evidence of vascular disease on their scan, and especially if it was something that was noticed, you know, kind of suddenly or over a relatively short period of time and then it stabilizes, those would all be things that would make me think, uh, yeah, this is vascular. Those are the kinds of people, if they really needed to know, well, is this Alzheimer's disease or is it just vascular disease? Those are the people that you would have a discussion with, I think, about uh, depending on their age and, and their general health. You have a discussion about uh, doing a lumbar puncture to see if they had the biomarker that says they have AD. And if they came back with uh, normal levels of amyloid and tau uh, with those vascular markers and vascular risk in a relatively stable course over a couple of years, yeah, they we don't find them a lot, but that's a vascular dementia or vascular cognitive impairment. Sir, just a quick follow-up question to that. How widespread is that testing? Let's say I convince, uh, I, I'm probably not, logistically, I'm probably not going to have time to do this in my primary care clinic. Um, if this is an outpatient, I'm probably going to send them to interventional radiology uh, to do a lumbar puncture, maybe neurology. 
But if I get the lumbar puncture, are these tests available everywhere or are they, they going to be sent out to a special government lab somewhere? Uh, well, I know the commercial lab that does it is Athena Neuroscience. Uh, I have no uh, fiscal interests or anything in Athena Neuroscience. I think they're in Worcester and they may also do them on the coast. So they can be sent out. Your path lab will know where to send them. But there may be other places around the country who uh, can do them as well. But, yeah, if you ask your path groups if I wanted to send the CSF out for uh, an Alzheimer assessment for uh, beta amyloid and tau, uh, they would probably tell you, yeah, send it to us in a polyprobe tube or get it up here right away as soon as you do the tap. And we'll do that and we'll send it off and then you'll get the result back along with your norms. So I I, I want to kind of backtrack just a little bit as well, going back to treatment, but focusing, uh, if we can, on non-pharmacological treatments or on foods. Um, what do you think about using vitamin E for dementia, for example? I think we have pretty much shown that vitamin E doesn't help. It uh, doesn't help prevent the disease. There was one study that did seem to show back in, uh, I think it was in the 90s, Mary Sano was the first author of the paper that was looking at selegiline and vitamin E, both antioxidants, in people who had moderate disease, and it seemed to show some preventive effect or some delay in the effects of uh, uh, time to severe disease or uh, uh, time to death. Multiple okay. studies after that have not shown a benefit of vitamin E. And although 10 years ago, if you'd asked the neurology meetings, how many of you take 2,000 uh, units of vitamin E, a bunch of hands would go up, and now if you ask, no one takes it. There, it's a lipid-soluble vitamin, although that's not a toxic dose, uh, uh, you know, it can build up. So uh, no one, I believe, thinks that vitamin E is uh, beneficial enough to uh, use to try and either prevent or slow down the disease. Sorry to say that, but and and selegiline didn't work either, and uh, we know now also that neither vitamin E nor uh, selenium, another antioxidant, can uh, prevent the disease. That paper was published uh, this year. What about uh, ginkgo biloba? Ginkgo biloba turns out to be extraordinarily safe, uh, but if you give it to people uh, seventy-five and above in the dose that generally is recommended, it does have it has no effect on uh, slowing down people from entering MCI from being normal or from going from MCI to AD. In short, it doesn't work either. When I was reviewing uh, one of the articles for this uh, podcast. They mentioned a medical food named Axona, which is a type of fractionated coconut oil. Any thoughts on that one, or is that something you're familiar with? I know about Axona. Uh, I, there is a lot of uh, talk about uh, coconut oil and all kinds of different oils since the days of Lorenzo's oil. Uh, and there have been some studies done that seem to suggest that it was helpful. Uh, but I know very few people who use it, and I think the right now the best thing you can rationalize it uh, for is that it may be helpful in providing some of the precursors that you would need as well as some of the antioxidant effects uh, but i do not believe there is uh, definitive proof that it works unlike a number of other medical foods uh, that are uh, what are called grass generally recognized as safe which you can market without fda approval uh, Axona was uh, a, uh, a medical food that was uh, put into a clinical trial, and that clinical trial seemed to indicate some positive effects, and I think that's why we still continue to hear about it. But uh, we need more data to be able to determine definitively how to answer the best answer to the question that you've asked. Any thoughts on coffee for the prevention or delayed uh, progression to Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment? Well, uh, if if coffee is preventive, I'm never going to get it. But I, <laughs> I think the the issue is that that uh, there's what one of my mentors would call a whisper of nature here that coffee and certain kinds of teas and so forth appear to be associated in very large epidemiological studies with not uh, with a lower risk of developing the disease. But we don't know about uh, the dosage or the frequency. Uh, and several of my epidemiological colleagues have pointed out to me that there is there are other significant differences in lifestyle and other things between tea drinkers and coffee drinkers, something that I found 
absolutely fascinating. But other than the fact that it may be a whisper of nature, that there is something that it has some effect upon, it may also simply be a reflection of other lifestyle aspects of of how coffee drinkers live that may be giving this uh, effect. Uh, But I don't think we have anything near evidence that would suggest that, gee, you know, you really should uh, start the day off with a latte and finish the day off with a latte as well. Sir, there's a uh, a popular drink called Bulletproof Coffee, which is basically you put coffee and one or two tablespoons of coconut oil and maybe some grass-fed but, um, yeah, butter from a grass-fed cow into a blender and, and blend it up. It tastes delicious, and it's uh, I, it, for people on a ketogenic diet, they just drink black coffee with coconut oil and this uh, grass-fed butter. And uh, it tastes pretty good, actually. It's a little rich, but it, it, they, they think it, it helps their brain work better. It just This discussion just made me think of that, but that's kind of a digression. Um, <laughs> I, had not, I had not heard of that, but it's, it sounds fascinating. I don't know how you're going to do the double-blind placebo-controlled trial on that one, but uh, you'll have to come up with something that uh, that tastes exactly like and feels in the mouth exactly like the uh, bulletproof coffee. Is that what you call it? Yes, bulletproof coffee. You you can try it. Uh, Sir, I I have to ask this question. So uh, my, my grandmother does her crossword puzzles. She does her cryptograms. This is her uh, one of the cognitive exercises she's doing to try to stay sharp. Any evidence that these kind of things work? Yes, um, they they don't work in isolation, but if you look and and there may be some causation problems here. It may be that the people who continue to do those are the ones who aren't getting uh, dimmer and quit. Uh, but if you look across the epidemiological data that says what post hoc is associated with uh, a lower risk of disease, meaning lower outcomes in the group that does X as opposed to Y, mental exercise and uh, intellectual engagement, uh, regretfully not just watching television, uh, is associated uh, with a decreased risk of disease. The one thing we know is that it can't hurt you. Uh, But if you look across the things like uh, staying physically active, watching your weight, watching your diet, watching your blood pressure. The other things that show up, interestingly, are a wide circle of friends and playing games, uh, probably related to social things, but probably also related to uh, the cognitive effort of uh, bridge or mahjong. I don't know how to play it, but I hear it's, it requires some uh, uh, mental effort. And, and certainly the um, uh, crossword puzzles, et cetera, where you exercise your brain. I'm I'm not a fan of uh, Sudoku, so uh, good for your grandmother. <laughs> the the other question I have, something that comes up a lot, anticholinergic medications and benzodiazepines. I try to get all of my patients off them, regardless of their age. I I've read that there's some evidence that these can accelerate cognitive impairment. What are your thoughts on the evidence there? I think the evidence that it accelerates cognitive impairment is probably not as strong as the evidence that it clearly knocks down cognition in people who take those drugs. I think one of the big problems outside of uh, uh, the obvious uh, Benadryl or uh, the uh, related uh, anticholinergics is that most people don't realize that it, it is in Tylenol PM and the other sleep nostrums, that they're almost all anticholinergics, and that people who take these every night and sometimes don't think of that as a medicine and don't tell their doctors about it, end up with cognitive impairment. And it's, it's uh, I haven't had a lot of these, but I have had people who have been brought in with a suspicion of mild cognitive impairment. And when you get a careful history and you find out that grandma is, is hooked on at least two of these, uh, name the drug PM, uh, that you pull them off it and they uh, slowly do better. Uh, the same thing with uh, benzodiazepines. Um, and, you know, people will take all kinds of them to sleep, uh, but it will clearly dull them. So if you want people who have MCI or Alzheimer's disease to do as well as they can, and if you want normal people to do as well as they can, <laughs> they, they, after I tell people, after age 55, you should not be taking these drugs. You just shouldn't take it. It won't hurt you to take one once in a while, but the people who take one every night to go to sleep, 
uh, are usually the people who frequently come into the clinic uh, with cognitive complaints and uh, don't realize that the sleeping medication, if it's got one of the common names on it, bufferin or something like that, people don't realize that it has uh, real CNS side effects that could uh, interfere with their thinking function. I know we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, we might we might have to do a part two at some point because I'm sure Stuart and I could ask you questions for hours. I've cut a lot of them. Sir, so to, to kind of wrap things up here, I know that there have been a number of trials recently for medications uh, for Alzheimer's disease that were relatively negative trials. Coming down the pike in the future, are there any future therapies that you're hopeful for or any new tar- targeted therapies that are, that are out there that we should look out for uh, as primary care doctors? Well, n- nothing will sneak up on you, Matt. Uh, the nature of the studies are such that it will take a year and a half or two years or more of exposure to either the active drug or the uh, placebo and then at the end of that time, look to see whether there has been a difference in what is ultimately a fairly slow-moving uh, uh, abnormality or slow-moving uh, uh, progressive change. Uh, I think in addition to continuing to see studies of either enzymes that uh, uh, interfere with the or medications that interfere with the synthesis of beta amyloid, uh, we will start to see antibodies or uh, other medications that interfere with the tau abnormalities, the tau protein abnormalities. That's important because tau, and we've known this from the pathology studies, and now we know it because we have some new PET ligands that can see tau in living people. Tau is correlated much more closely uh, with the level of cognitive impairment. So if you start with people who have mild cognitive impairment and they have X amount of tau and you give a drug that supposedly either clears it out or prevents its uh, spread, uh, then you'd have a nice biomarker with which to watch them in addition to watching their cognition. So I would say the next group, now that we have a tau biomarker to watch, the next group of studies will be on uh, tau along with amyloid, probably some other studies looking at neuroimmunological uh, uh, ways to uh, interfere with the bad inflammation, but allow the good inflammation. And if we're lucky, find some ways that we can precipitate regeneration. Uh, I think that is some something of what uh, the coconut oils and the other precursors to membrane components and uh, synaptic components are trying to do. And as we develop better imaging methodologies, we have glucose metabolism that we can do with FDG glucose, fluoroxy glucose PET. We also have several new ligands that actually light up synapses themselves that don't just use the energy they use, which is what FDG PET does. Two of them, which have just come out within the last year or so, not yet widely available for, and, and still for research. But the more we have biomarkers that will enable us to look quickly at some kinds of drugs and see if they have the desired effects, uh, the more the armamentarium hopefully will grow. Sir, this has been just really amazing. Uh, Thank you so much for all your time and and all your teaching tonight. Uh, We really appreciate it. It's it's been wonderful. It was my pleasure, guys. Uh, Stuart, is uh, is Brigham and Women's name for you? (laughs) No, no. I think I'm named after someone else. Can you believe he's not even Mormon? I'm not even a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> hey guys well you've been you've been a terrific host this i've enjoyed it god i just saw what time it was all right you take care all right sir i'll be in touch through email thank you oh take care both of you bye-bye this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. So to do that, we want your input. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You're getting pretty good at that, Matt. We now have a new a newsletter, which will be coming out once a month. You can sign up for that on our website, uh, thecurbsiders.com, and the newsletter is under the news section. Also, you can follow us on our pages on Facebook, 
Instagram, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. Hey, where's Paul? I don't know. He forgot. 